0: Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this great day, this day of the Lord, this Sunday when we get together and we celebrate the most important event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from dead. And we thank you that the tomb is empty, that sin is forgiven, that death is conquered, that you are exalted, that salvation has been granted by grace to all who would receive it. We pray as we would study, that we would love you, that we would see you, that we would follow you, that we would believe in you, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of Scripture, and boy, is there some good truth in this chapter of the Bible. So bless us, we pray, as we hear your word in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the most important thing you can know? And you think about all that information that we're constantly bombarded with from media and advertising. I mean, the average home has multiple TVs. The average TV's on eight hours a day. The average person spends three hours a day online. Just think of all of the constant influx of information. And out of that sea of information that you will receive throughout the totality of your life, what would you answer would be the most important fact that you know? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Paul says that what he is going to tell us about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing in all of human history, the most important fact to be known. He declares it to be of first importance. So he begins answering this very important question of what must be known. He says, now brothers, and that's a term of endearment for Christians. Brothers, brothers and sisters, male and female Christians who love Jesus, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel being the good news, that's what the word means. Life is filled with bad news, There is sin and injustice and war and oppression and famine and evil and death. There's plenty of bad news. If you watch the news, you get plenty of bad news. Paul says there's also good news. The good news is about Jesus. He's going to tell us about Jesus Christ. That Jesus became a human being. Our eternal God took on human flesh to identify with us. He lived a life so that he could sympathize with us in every way, being tempted as we are, suffering as we are, yet he did not sin as we do. And then Jesus died. He died in our place. Paul will say, for the reason of taking away sin. And then three days later, he rose. This is the good news. That the world is filled with bad news And the good news, the best news we've ever heard is that God has loved us in Jesus. That God has dealt with our sin in Jesus. That God has conquered our enemy in Jesus. This is very good news. And he goes on to say, I remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. Kind of as news reporters give us the news, so preachers are to give us the good news of Jesus which you received and that, and that would be our prayer for all who come and hear. I pray that you would not only hear about Jesus, but that you would receive the message as personal, transforming, life-altering truth for yourself on which you have taken your stand The result being then, we would pray, that upon receiving the truth of the person and work of Jesus, that your whole life would be built upon that truth, and that you would stand for the remainder of your life and into your eternity on the truth that is Jesus, who takes away sin and conquers death, and that he alone is worthy of worship. By this gospel, Paul says in verse 2, by this good news, you are saved. Saved from what? From hell? Saved from sin? Saved from death? Saved from the wrath of God? Saved from eternal separation from the love of God? All of this salvation is occurring through the person and work of Jesus Christ being poured out into our history. He says, If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So Paul says, yeah, we have a problem. That problem is simply sin. And we're all sinners. We all have, in word and deed and thought, done what we were not to do and not done what we were to do. We have sins of omission, not doing the right. We have sins of commission, doing the wrong. We're all sinners. And the result of sin is death and we all die. And that is bad news, that we're all sinners and we all die. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come to love and to save us, to rescue us from ourselves and the perilous eternity that we face. So Paul then continues by explaining a little more about this good news in verse three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Of all that can be known, this is the one thing that absolutely assuredly must be known. And then he goes on to give us what is the summary of the early church creed. That's how it reads. It was that that which the early Christians memorized to note what they believed about the person and work of Jesus. The early Christians in the very days and years following the resurrection of Jesus developed this early creed to remind them in a simple way of what they believed. And now, 2,000 years later, we're studying it because we believe, guess what? The exact same thing. Our faith has not changed to any degree. What they believed, we believe as well. And here is their creed that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Yeah, he's going to root all of this in the authority of God's Word, the Bible. He's going to tell us that history had been for hundreds and thousands of years foreshadowing and eagerly anticipating the coming of Jesus and the Old Testament tells us hundreds hundreds and thousands of years in advance that Jesus would be a man born of a virgin woman in the town of Bethlehem that he would live a life without sin that he would be be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver that he'd be crucified as his mode of execution that he would be laid in the tomb of rich man, and that three days later he would rise to take away sin and to conquer our enemy of death. All of this is told throughout the Old Testament, eagerly anticipated, expected by God's people. And what he says is that when God came into history, he fulfilled all that was promised and longed for in the Old Testament text of Scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's the Christian euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul declares that the most important fact in all of human history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he gives us four lines of reasoning and evidence to help bolster the claim of Jesus' resurrection, which assuring us that placing our faith and trust in Jesus is altogether wise and good because it's altogether grounded in historical reality and fact. The first thing he declares is that Jesus Christ died. Yeah, this... Teaching is under attack. I mean, there are popular books, forthcoming films that deny that Jesus died. There are also religions like Islam that declare that Jesus Christ did not die. So we must establish the historical fact of Jesus' death. Yep, he underwent the flogging, which is a brutal beating that left him near dead. Many men died just from that unbelievably excruciating beating. Flesh was removed from his body. He was in shock. He was bleeding profusely. He was hungry, dehydrated. He had a sleepless night before his intense flogging. He was near death. And then they took Jesus. Yep, the professional executors did. They took him to the place of crucifixion. They literally nailed him to a Roman cross through the hands and feet. This was a painful, publicly humiliating, humiliating way to die. And Jesus died died and breathed his last. The professional executioner executioner who was there to ensure his death declared him to be dead. To then guarantee his death, a spear was sent through Jesus' side, under his ribcage, up into his heart, puncturing his heart, causing water and blood to flow out of his side, thereby guaranteeing beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus most certainly was dead and for what reason I mean lots of good people die lots of innocent people die untimely unjust unpleasant deaths but why did Jesus die and that is what is so significant for us Paul says that Christ died for our sins the penalty for sin is death See, God is a holy, righteous, and good God. An offense against God results in the penalty of death. And we have all sinned and fallen short of God's good glory and God's expectations for us as people, everybody included, absolutely guilty as charged. And subsequently, that penalty of sin must be paid and that consequence of death must be faced. And out of love and grace and mercy, God became a human being. He lived without sin. He died as a substitute for our sin. He paid our penalty of death. And he rose to forgive sin and conquer death, taking away the human problem of sin and eliminating our final enemy, the grave. Jesus Christ died, historical fact, for our sins as our substitute in love, in our place. What that means is when I think of the cross, I think that I should suffer. I think I should have died. I should have gone or gone the same sort of horror that Jesus did because of the person that I am and the life that I have lived. But I will not die that kind of death, and I will not face that kind of eternal judgment and separation from God because Jesus did it for me. So the first thing he says, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And secondly, he was buried. We know that Jesus' body was then taken off the cross. it was prepared for burial in that day. The preparation was not unlike what we would call mummification, very similar where they would wrap the body in upwards of a hundred pounds of linens and spices. It was a major preparation of the burial. It was a large process, arduous process. Once the body was prepared, it was then laid into a tomb. Jesus was born homeless; he had to he had no tomb. So one of his disciples, more of a secret disciple, who was quiet about his faith, was a rich, affluent, powerful, well-known public figure named Joseph of Arimathea, gifted to the dead body of Jesus his own personal tomb. This was to fulfill what was promised in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death. And his body was laid into that tomb, so that tomb was widely known to belong to a public figure, easily verified. A large stone was rolled over the entrance to the tomb to guarantee that no one would tamper with the body. The seal of the government was placed over that tomb to ensure that no one would tamper with the body of Jesus. And then to further guarantee that the body would not be tampered with, A guard was posted to make sure that the body was not stolen and was in no way tampered with. Jesus died and he was buried. Then Paul says, his third line of evidence is that Jesus Christ, unlike anyone who has ever lived, unlike any religious teacher who has ever taught, unlike any miracle worker who has ever served, Jesus Christ conquered death. This makes him distinct from this makes him superior to everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live jesus christ rose and this claim is altogether unique one of a kind this claim is altogether worthy of our investigation because all of christianity hinges on this central significant issue of the resurrection of jesus and there are differences on secondary matters but on this matter all Christians agree. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, all believe simply what Paul says. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose. So then Paul bolsters this amazing claim of the resurrection of Jesus with evidence about the eyewitnesses. Not only did he rise from death, but his, Paul's fourth point is that Jesus appeared. People saw him. This was known public fact. This was not obscure, hidden fact of the day. This was public news and public discussion. He says, first of all, that Jesus appeared following his death and resurrection to his friends. And that included Peter, whom he names. Peter being the leader of the disciples who was trained by Jesus personally for some three years. Peter was a man who was a bit of a coward. We know that. He denied Jesus three times. As Jesus went to his execution. So he was a bit of a coward. Peter was a man who lacked courage until he saw Jesus risen from death. Jesus spoke to him, reinstated him as a leader for his ministry, and Peter was altogether transformed. Transformed, Peter was, into a bold, courageous man by the resurrection of Jesus. He went on to preach the resurrection of Jesus, to suffer for preaching the resurrection. He wrote two books of the Bible bearing his name. And ultimately, when they went to crucify him, he didn't recant. In fact, he remained devoted to the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus. Even though they crucified him, they did it upside down. Because Peter didn't want to be crucified. He was unworthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord. Some say, well, these men were liars. The question simply is, do they have the character of liars? These are men who serve the poor. Yep, these are men They serve the needy and the widows and the orphans and the outcasts. These are not men that are greedy or seeking power or fame or fortune. These are men who suffered, were on the run, were hated and despised, and were murdered in poverty and in shame. For what reason? Well, for the truth, that's why. Jesus also appeared to his other disciples who saw him, including Thomas, who perhaps, like some of you, was a great doubter. And he wondered if Jesus had indeed risen from death. And he said, I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands. I need to have evidence. And so Jesus appeared to Thomas and Thomas investigated the body of his friend and saw his crucifixion scars. And Thomas said, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ did die. I was there, that he was buried. I saw it. And Jesus did rise. I am a witness. And he fell down as we all should. And Thomas declared, my Lord, my God. And Thomas worshiped Jesus Christ as God, because that's what resurrection will do to a person. So Jesus appeared to his friends, also to strangers. Paul says that over the course of some 40 days, he appeared to crowds numbering over 500 people at a time. That's pretty large crowds. I mean, think about it. At that point, people were looking, living that more rural type of living and people who were, and they were scattered. For 500 people to come together that's a very major significant public event and Jesus appeared to more than 500 at once what that tells us is that Jesus was not in hiding he was he was widely known this would have been front page of the newspaper and the leading story on the nightly newscast this was the discussion at work this was the discussion at synagogue This was the buzz around town. This was at the dinner table that Jesus was alive and he was walking around and he was visible publicly and he was scheduling meetings and going to meals and making appearances and everyone had an opportunity to verify that he had indeed risen from death. Paul says, if you don't believe me, then go ask the eyewitnesses because this was not penned at a point in history where it was dozens or hundreds of years following the resurrection of Jesus. There was no time for myth, legend, fable or folklore to occur. This in fact was penned when many of the eyewitnesses were still alive and they could verify the facts. Jesus appeared to friends and strangers and family and he mentions James. Now James was Jesus' brother. Now during his earthly life, Jesus had two brothers, James and Jude, neither of whom, while he was alive prior to his crucifixion, worshipped him as God for understandable reasons. Most of us would not feel comfortable worshipping our big brother. It's unreasonable. But James and John worshipped their big brother as God. Why? Because he rose from the dead. They believed that their brother was God that God had become a human being that happened to be their big brother. And they they were so utterly transformed that they not only became Christians who worshiped Jesus, something that good Jewish boys don't do. Good Jewish boys don't just pick people to worship. They must be absolutely convinced that the God that they're worshiping is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lest the 10 commandments be brought to bear upon them that they would worship a false God and suffer the eternal torment of hell. And his own brother said, you know what? It's true. We lived with him. He's our brother. He never sinned. We saw him die. We saw him buried. We we went to his funeral and we saw him rise. And it's our brother. He said he was God come down from heaven to live without sin, to die, to take away sin. And that he would rise to prove that he was God on a mission of salvation. And he did exactly what he said he would do they began to worship their brother as god they both became pastors they both wrote books of the new testament bearing their names james became a very prominent leader in the early church pastoring from the very beginning the church in jerusalem and paul says what would it take for someone to worship their brother as god extraordinary evidence that what such is the resurrection Some of you might say, well, these are his friends, maybe his acquaintances and his family. Perhaps they were predisposed to eagerly yearn for the coming of Jesus from death. Maybe they worked together out of their heart's longing because what they really wanted was Jesus to rise. Maybe they made this up and hundreds of thousands of people were in on the lie. Maybe they all suffered for it for no apparent reason. Man, that's stretching things. To make the final point, the absolutely nails the case of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, I saw him too. Now Paul was not an acquaintance, Paul was not a friend, Paul was not a family member of Jesus, he was an enemy of Jesus. He hated Jesus with the kind of deep hatred that few have ever had for Jesus or anyone else. He despised Christians. One of our first introductions to Paul is in the book of Acts where, what is he doing? Participating in the public execution and unjust murder of an early Christian leader, a deacon named Stephen, because Stephen worshiped the resurrected Jesus. And Paul's mission was to murder people who worshipped Jesus until he saw the resurrected Jesus. And upon seeing Jesus restored to life, Paul was struck with the incontrovertible fact that Jesus Christ was and is God who has taken away sin and conquered death and deserves our worship alone. And Paul was radically transformed. He went from a murderer of Christians to a pastor of Christians. He went from someone who put Christians to death to preach the hope of their resurrection at their funeral as their pastor. He went from a man who devoted his life to destroying Christianity to a man who gave his life in the service of Christianity. He is a man who was shipwrecked, homeless, beaten, left for dead, impoverished, on the run, and in prison for one reason. He wouldn't stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is essentially saying this. I wouldn't lie. I would not have such a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of life if it were not indeed factual and true. And the question is, why would a man like Paul tell a lie that is absolutely opposed to everything that he is committed to? That only condemns him as a fool. Why would he tell a lie that profited him no power no fame no money no glory all it brought him was shame disgrace death when previously to that he was a highly respected affluent man who had a bright future before him and he gave that all up and had an absolute transformation in his heart and in his mind regarding the person and work of Jesus the answer is because it's true because it's true And the eyewitnesses were alive to verify this fact in that day. And we would be so foolish as to thousands of years following the fact to believe the testimony of people who weren't eyewitnesses, to believe stories that were made up hundreds of years after the eyewitnesses lived, to follow the teachings of people who have great money to make, have great fame to pursue by reinterpreting the story of Jesus When those who suffered and died, homeless, broke, and despised for the cause of the truth, tell us the facts that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose, and that Jesus was witnessed by many friends, family, strangers, and enemies alike. And then Paul concludes in verse 9, is what you believed. What he's saying is this, that Christians are not good people. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you say, I'm not impressed with Christians. I think they're all sinners. We would say, yes, that's what we believe. You may say, well, Christians are no better than I am. Yes, we would agree with you. Some of you are perhaps thinking, what right do you have to tell me anything? And the answer is, well, I have no right at all just as Paul had no right to be a pastor. You see, God does not choose us because we are good people. God does not choose us because we are lovely people. God does not choose us because we are deserving people. God chooses us in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. You say, well, how does that work? How do undeserving people get love? How do guilty people get forgiven? How do rebellious people get affection? How do condemned people get mercy? And Paul says, that is grace. And that is the heart of the Christian faith, grace. We are a people of grace. We say we're all sinners. We don't merit, deserve, earn God's love and favor. None of us can claim a right for God to be kind to us, to forgive us, to embrace us, to en- endure with us to deliver us into his eternal presence none of us has that right but by grace that offer is given freely this is god's love in action this is god's mercy in action this is god's kindness at work it's all of grace paul says i'm saved by grace i would tell you i'm saved by grace that's what, that's all And all who are saved from death and hell and sin and judgment are saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone. And Paul says that not only does God's grace save us from our old way of life, it empowers us for a new way of life. Paul says, I've worked very hard and I've accomplished a few things, but don't pat me on the back. It was only by God's grace that I got anything done. It's only by God's grace that I have had a transformation of my life that God could use me for his purposes, that God could come out of this evil heart. And so grace is the heart of all we believe. Grace is the sum total of what we are about, that grace saves us by grace through Jesus. God empowers us to live a new life, forever together with him by grace, a life that is changed in this body. A life that has eternal value because it will be lived together forever with Jesus who has made a way for us beyond the grave by his resurrection from death. So so i got to ask you, have you received this truth? Paul says that we must receive it and we must stand upon it to be of practical value for us. Ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you pray to Jesus? Do you sing to Jesus? Do you serve Jesus? Do you live for Jesus? Do you adore Jesus because of what he's done for you? Is your heart inclined toward Jesus? Does your mind open the scriptures and search for Jesus? Does your heart long for him? do Do you wait for the day when one day you will see Jesus face to face? That's what Christianity is all about. It is Jesus loving us, and us responding with love and obedience to him. And the good news is it doesn't matter what you have done. You certainly probably are not any worse than Paul, even the worst among us. And if God could love that man, think about it, and enable him to write a large portion of the Bible, then God certainly has sufficient love for all of us. That's how I look at it. And is willing to embrace us as well. Through the death and resurrection of jesus to take away sin to reconcile us to god to conquer our enemy of death to begin newness of life with him marked by grace think about it you can pray to him ask him to forgive your sins and be your god he will because jesus christ is alive and well he's happy to hear from you he's happy to respond to you he is delighted to answer prayer and i want you to know That as Jesus got out of his grave, God's people come together, they'll get out of their grave. Every tribe, language, tongue, nation, people of the earth. On our day of great resurrection at the coming of Jesus. Wow, think about that day. With brothers and sisters numbering in the billions around the world who like Paul say, I've been saved by grace. God has loved me well and I'm exceedingly glad. Amen. Father, we thank you for being honest about our need and we confess that we are sinners fallen short. And then we find ourselves separated from you and in need of reconciliation of that broken relationship. We thank you for humbly coming as a human being to identify with us. We thank you for courageously resisting sin and living without sin. We thank you for going to the cross and substituting yourself for us, dying in our place. We thank you. We thank you for the day of resurrection, that the tomb is empty, that you are alive, that sin has been forgiven, that death has been defeated, that relationships have been restored, that grace has been poured out, that new life has been given. And we ask that the Holy Spirit fill us, that we might love you with redeemed hearts, we might sing to you with redeemed mouths, and we might live here empowered by grace to live redeemed lives. Amen.